Money FM 89.3. Best of the evening runway. The Washington Report. Money FM 89.3. Time now for the Washington Report, where we'll take a look at key headlines out of the United States. Stupid Tuesday, which is traditionally one of the most important dates on the U.S. political calendar. That's fast approaching. 15 states, one territory will vote on March the 5th. That is next Tuesday. Of course, traditionally, Super Tuesday is the day that is seen to most accurately forecast how the presidential primaries will play out. But with Donald Trump in the mix there, nothing is traditional anymore. Yeah, it's earned its nickname because it's the date most states hold their primaries and caucuses, meaning it's also when the most delegates are at stake to earn that party nomination. So how important is it going to be this year? On the line with us is Emeritus Professor Joseph Camilleri, who is from the La Trobe University, Melbourne. He's also a fellow at the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia. Professor, good afternoon. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. All right, Professor, so uh, after this weekend, South Carolina win, it really looks like a rematch between President Joe Biden and Donald Trump uh, this coming November. Uh, yes, it does look like it. It uh, tells us something about the state of politics in the U.S., that uh, should either of them win, they would be well into their 80s in the coming presidency. So, yes, it does look like it. That is to say, unless the legal cases which are hanging over Trump constitute some kind of impediment between now and November. But barring that, uh, it looks most likely now that he will uh, win the nomination and probably win it very comfortably. Yeah, so uh, speaking of that, and you can't help but think the closest competitor, Nikki Haley, isn't even that close. No other major or modern candidate has refused to drop out of the race after so many losses. Is this something that Nikki Haley should think about, or does she feel she can still claw back into the race? No, I think she feels uh, that she owes it to her supporters uh, to keep going for a while longer, but uh, assuming... Super Tuesday turns out the way most observers think it will, then I have a feeling she may well consider uh, withdrawing at that point. So for Nikki Haley hanging on for this long, knowing there's no path to victory for her unless there's a miracle, what do you think her end goal is? Well, I think she wanted to perhaps, uh, she's relatively young if you compare uh, her to uh, uh, the two aspiring presidents for the next administration, Biden and uh, Trump. Mm -hmm. So even if she didn't win this particular nomination round, she probably would stand uh, a chance uh, come uh, four years from now. Assume that even if he were to win the presidency, Trump would not go for the second term. Mm -hmm. But these these days, in American politics, uh, you can expect anything. Mm. But the fact that she's committed a seven-figure ad buy, that, you know, and all this in the lead-up to Super Tuesday, that does say a lot about the fundraising front. And I guess, should we put the confidence in someone like Nikki Haley if we're looking the next four or even eight years on? Well, uh, you know, uh, in my view, her politics... Uh, 
still more or less as troublesome as Trump's politics mm. are. She has a softer voice, so to speak. Mm. Uh, she appears as more moderate, more thoughtful. But to be honest with you, neither the Democrats, for outsiders, mm. neither the Democrats or the Republicans greatly inspire confidence uh, in the minds of other, other allies. Mm -hmm be it Europe or Asia, or for that matter, those who are non-aligned, America seems to be going through a very terrible time. And when and how it will come out of it, politically and socially, well, it's anyone's guess at this stage. Would, it, would I be fair to say then, well, I guess there's just no other choice, that's why you've got these candidates? That's right. Uh, it tells you an awful lot about the mood of the United States and the frozen state of American politics that new voices and fresh ideas don't seem able to emerge at, at least mm. at this time. Mm -mm. So let's let's talk about that, uh, Professor. Perhaps you can explain it to many of us outsiders. If you've got these figures in the U.S. who are, well, looking like the only two options to become president by November, why... For example, for Donald Trump, he's very disliked around the world outside the United States, but he does have his hardcore believers in the U.S. What is his appeal there? Two things that ought to be said. There are those who don't like him, and I perhaps uh, fit into that category. There are he those has, who love him. Um, yes, there are those who love him. And the point about him is that he is one of the most skillful operators we've seen for a very long time, and he's able to put his finger on the many deep anxieties mm -hmm. and concerns of large swathes of the American public. Of course, he has, uh, his, his stronghold is uh, conservative Americans, especially in um, traditionally conservative states, but he still gets support even in so-called more moderate, more, more progressive electorates in other states. So I think he will come very close mm -hmm. again, uh, come the next election. He's appealing to anxieties about the state of the economy, about America's standing in the world, about the, uh, in relation to those who are doing it very tough. Uh, more than 40 million Americans are under the poverty line. And uh, there are many, many uh, anxieties, insecurities that many Americans feel, and he's able to appeal to them in a way that uh, no other candidate, either within the Republicans or the Democrats, seems able to appeal to or is able to resonate with. Professor, let's move on to the next issue. And the issue that we're looking at is this fresh spat between Washington and Moscow. It's uh, raised alarm about the political risk of a space-based nuclear satellite attack that could cause chaos to critical communication systems on Earth. Now, Russia has denied U.S. claims that it's developing uh, some kind of a space-based anti-satellite nuclear weapon. Uh, their president, Vladimir Putin, saying last week that the Kremlin was categorically against the deployment of nuclear weapons in space. They even accused the White House of scaring lawmakers into passing a new aid package for Ukraine. First issue, what exactly is a space nuke and, and how will this raise tensions between Washington and Moscow? It really does disable the networks here on Earth. That's right, and it would cause enormous disruption, not only to the adversary, 
but to many others who rely on uh, satellite systems of one kind or another, communication systems around the world, it would probably affect uh, whoever uses it as well, were it to be Russia or anyone else for that matter. So I'm inclined to think that developing a capability, even if it is true Mm. that Russia is doing that, and we don't have uh, evidence to that effect, Uh, we've got a claim from the US and a counterclaim for Russia, but even if it were engaging in some research in that area, it doesn't mean that they would actually go ahead because it is such a horrendous prospect that you could have the disabling of satellite systems around the world that would be pretty well uh, indiscriminate in the way they affect uh, a wide range of countries. So I would uh, treat it, and and it is interesting that Biden and some other commentators have said there is no threat, no imminent threat uh, on this front. So I read it as a continuing example of the tensions between these two countries and um, both of them have not yet a, have not yet found a way mm. to communicate with each other in a reasonably direct, let alone in a civil way. And that's uh, very, it's unfortunate, and at times it can verge on the dangerous, uh, but that's where we're at at this time. So, Professor, why, why is that so then? Why are we still sort of kind of living through the Cold War to this day? Why can't the West and Russia kind of solve their, their differences? Well, I think the Russian reading of the situation, and there's something to be said for it, is that the United States, at the end of the Cold War, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, Mm -hmm. regarded itself as having won the Cold War, as having beaten the Soviet Union, and as having seen the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union as therefore gaining primacy in world affairs and as not being willing to treat Russia in any terms as an equal. Now, that's the Russian view. There is something, something to be said for that position. And what I think Putin is trying to do, whether he's doing it the right way or the wrong way, but what he's trying to do is to say to the United States, well, you can't treat Russia this way. You can't pretend that you are still the global dominant that can dictate to others what happens and what doesn't happen. And I think this is with the kind of conversation uh, that these two states, U.S. and Russia, have to um, really come to terms with the conversation they haven't yet had properly, Mm -hmm. and that is whether they can find the principles on which we can base some kind of coexistence between the two, hopefully cooperative coexistence, uh, rather than uh, very uh, rivalry that verges on the dangerous side for them, for the two of them, and for the rest of the world. Mm. Professor, the fact that China is the second largest economy in the world, what are your thoughts on this current situation in relation to China? They've tried to play peacemaker. They are at the table or trying to get to the table. What's gonna? What's it going to take for China to turn against Moscow with regard to this matter? Is it, is it enough to push Beijing? Oh, well, I think uh, China has made a decision, if you like, has come to a conclusion uh, that at this point in time, its interests 
align more closely with Russia than the United States. They know that they have to coexist with the United States, but in terms of cooperation, they have developed, out of self-interest, on both sides, Russia, China, a close strategic partnership. And there's no likelihood that that will change. doesn't mean that they have identical positions. Uh, even on Ukraine, China maintains that it wants to see an end to the conflict as quickly as possible and has offered uh, some ideas for uh, a resolution of the conflict. But so it is a decision on the part of China to be helpful to Russia, but not to be so helpful as to necessarily follow the Russian lead on this or that issue, be it Ukraine or something else. It wants to maintain its lines of communication with the United States as well. Mm. Uh, the other thing that should be said about China is that it places much less store on the use of military power than does the United States or Russia for that matter, because it believes that it has a much more effective trump card, and that is uh, the economic card, and that it feels on that front uh, the... Um, the cards are stacked in its favor, and that's the one it's going to be using. And um, while it will build up its uh, military capability, which it is doing, uh, it is not really in a mood to project that military capability uh, across borders in the way that Russia and the United States have been willing to do. All right. Thank you very much for your thoughts. We've been speaking with Emeritus Professor Joseph Camilleri, who is from La Trobe University, Melbourne, and fellow at the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia. Professor, thank you for your time. Take care and have a great Monday. You too. Thank you. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.